misunderstood. Yeah. Some say that he's up to no good around the neighborhood. Revolve your information. A lot of my brothers got education. Now check it. You got your Wall Street brother. Your blue collar brother. You're down for whatever chilling on the corner brother. My name is Lalu Davies Yemington, and you're listening to My Brother Podcast. From technology to government to healthcare to infrastructure to real estate, so many of these industries are driven by finance. And individuals behind those deals are a group of experts who uh, have a, an extensive background in finance or capital markets. Uh, my guest today is one of those such individuals. After a corporate career, uh, Jeff Green now serves as managing director for GWG Capital. Jeff, thank you for so much for making time to uh, be our guest today. Would you start with a bit of a background uh, on yourself and how you arrived at this point? Yeah, no, I actually grew up in San Diego and uh, played tennis. I went to college where I played tennis as well at the University of California, um, but really didn't know what I really wanted to do. I was a Chinese history major and an economics major. And, you know, as I got further into it, I started to take some entrepreneurship courses. And being so close to Silicon Valley, the gentleman that taught our course was a person that invented fiber optics. And he had tremendous uh, contacts uh, in Silicon Valley. And he would actually have uh, venture capital firms come in and talk to us about what the deals they're doing and the opportunities they have. And I really just fell in love with that. And, and that's really what drove me to then go to uh, business school at the University of Michigan, where I had the opportunity to, to, to really study under some of the top professors in the country around business. And I really learned business from the ground up, um, at which point I, I graduated from there, moved to Kansas City, uh, to work for Home Cards, where I worked in a number of different jobs in marketing for a couple of years. Um, went on to Gillette, again, a corporate job doing brand management. And, and really why I picked brand management was you have the opportunity to almost be a general manager of your own business. And so I worked at Gillette on razors and then went to Kraft Foods and worked on the bird's eye frozen vegetables, a Cool Whip, those kinds of um, products. I found myself going to American Express, where I did similar kinds of things uh, at a higher level in, in marketing and, and strategy. And then I went to companies like GE, where I was at GE Capital, where I ran their commercial credit card business and was able to do that. And then on to you know AIG, another large company, where I, I did something I didn't expect to do, which is I worked around the country, I mean, around the world, excuse me. I ran a business in 27 countries and got to go to China, Hong Kong, Malaysia, uh, a lot of places in, in Europe, uh, the Middle East, India, uh, just a very, very exciting job to really see the world, which was great. And it wasn't on my nickel. So that was uh, a lot of fun. And then I had an opportunity to then start my own company. And I was fortunate enough to pick something that was hot, which was wireless technology. And we're able to grow that to the point to which we're the 138th fastest growing company in the country based on Inc. Magazine. Um, and that company did very, very well. And we were able to sell that. Um, and now I really go out and invest my own money and 
projects and deals. We're now setting up a $100 million fund that I hope to complete in the next uh, oh, six months or so. Um, and that's pretty much where I am today. And, and the other thing you should know, I'm from San Diego, California. You're probably wondering if I leave. I, I wonder that all the time. Um, and, and it's so different here than San Diego. And living in all these different spots, it's been fascinating to see how different the politics are as well. Yeah, and different here, you're referring to Dallas, Texas. And I don't know, how long have you been in the Dallas area? About 10 years, but but moving from Connecticut, which was very liberal, to Dallas, which is more conservative, is very, very different. Yeah, I can imagine. So, you know, they say it never rains in Southern California. I've actually seen it rain while I've been out, out in LA. So there's, it's not all the way true. But take us back to your Southern California roots. What was your upbringing like? Can you talk a little bit about your formative uh, yeah, year? I'd love to do that. And I had a very unusual background. I actually was born in Boston, Massachusetts. My, my mom was a professor at Harvard. And then my father was completing his PhD at MIT. And we ended up, and he became a nuclear physicist. And we ended up moving to California when I was six months old. Um, and we literally were the only one of two black families in our entire community. And I grew up like for, for all the years I went to So a very Venus kind of situation. And really people weren't very sensitive to sort of racial issues, if you will. Um, so it was a very different kind of uh, upbringing. The good thing is my parents were very well educated. And uh, my dad went to West Point also. So he's former military. And so my, my parents really took, took pains to make sure that I understood about the black culture and what we do. Um, and also getting me involved in, in literature from an African-American perspective and placing like the whiz, other kinds of things like that. Uh, going to museums, going to Watts, same thing. So my parents went out of their way, you know, to do that. And they also taught me the value of service because my mother was president of the school board, uh, was also head of the Human Relations Commission, which was basically looked at issues in the community relates to race and those types of things. So she got really involved in Indian reservations. And I really got a really great upbringing. And, and really what's neat about where I grew up in San Diego was you could have people that literally orange grove the people's parents working the orange groves, picking oranges, were doctors. Everybody lived in the same community, which you don't have today. Because we live in Highland Park and it's not like that. And that's what I like too. You really got a diversity of people that wasn't so much around, there weren't a lot of black people were Hispanic people. You know, so that that's kind of my, my upbringing. Yeah, wow, that's incredible. So you're born in Boston, you wind up in Southern California, you're both your parents, you know, obviously very well educated, which, you know, that is definitely something that I consider you to be fortunate because too often we don't have those stories of having a good, uh, you know, family structure and also having them as role models and really uh, having two highly educated parents uh, uh, was definitely a blessing. And then they're being intentional. I think it's probably related uh, to their experiences and, 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 and their educational uh, background and just, just how they perceive the world. So I think much kudos to them. And I think it's definitely reflected in uh, who you've become today. 
Now, you've talked about sort of early on, and, and I love the story that you, bring, uh, that you mentioned about living in these mixed communities, because as you know, I'm in the real estate business, and that's one of the big issues now. Uh, and part of what, what's the motivation behind us creating this platform where my brother can help us relate his uh, stories and, and, uh, and, and really help young people see what they can be, not just what they can be, but how and what steps different people took. None of us have the same paths, but um, I, I want to go back again to, you know, you're going from being a young, um, you know, a toddler to, you know, your teenage years. Can you talk a little bit about what your teenage years were like? What was the high school experience like? And then um, how did you pick, um, you know, how did you choose to stay in California for college? Yeah, it, you know, I, I like a lot of kids. I don't really feel like I fit into my high school. I mean, I played tennis and that wasn't like the cool kid sport really, but it, it, it wasn't easy, you know, um, particularly being an African-American kid growing up in that kind of environment. I think back on it, it was, it was, it was different. I liked it, but, um, you know, different from that perspective. Um, I had, I had friends, but I, I really, like the diversity of going to college. And I think that once I got to college, I realized just how different that experience was. And but you pick, and that's really the interesting I ended up picking the University of California. What I liked about it, very liberal, very diverse. It was like going to the United Nations, you know, and, and you really could meet Vietnamese people, Chinese people, blacks, white. There was a you know large enough number of them so that everybody could pick really uh, whatever the was the kind of people they want to meet, and and I, I like going to the dining hall and sitting with people I didn't know and learning new things from new people. So you really, I found I really learned from others. Yeah. So Jeff, you uh, you know, you 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 go through college, California, then from there you go to University of Michigan Business School. Was there much of a shift from University of California to now going to Michigan, especially? And what's the business school up there called? It's well, the business uh, at, the, at the time it was just University of Michigan um, Business School. Okay, um, but um, it, it's a top ten business. School. I actually got a yeah. I got into Stanford, but I had to work for two years, and I got a fellowship. They paid for my entire four, two years there, and gave me a stipend. So it was a really good deal. That was a tough. That was a tough place too because. Half the African flunked out of my class. It was not a good situation. Um, and I remember talking to the dean about that. People just didn't feel like they were fitting in. You, you say they, they dropped out or? Half, half the class did. Wow. They had to make systemic changes after that yeah. school. But one of the things, it's interesting, and I learned something about life, because someone came to me and said, Mr. Green, we need to, the dean wanted to see me which was surprising because they don't know how to talk to undergrad, I mean, to business school students. So I went inside and met with him and he basically asked me what happened to the other African-Americans. And I told him, I can't speak for them. I can only speak mm -hmm. for myself. You know, it's almost like you in, in real estate, if somebody said, well, these other guys aren't successful, you are, what's up with that? You can only speak to yourself. Yeah. But, but what I did understand was that many people didn't feel as included, didn't feel, and that was the kind of courses where they would call on you, and students claimed they weren't getting called on, and 
things along those lines. And I saw a little bit of that too. So there was, there was, there were a lot of factors. To yeah. A lot of factors, but that was, that was the unfortunate part of it. Very yeah, so, yeah. So you've had this background growing up in, you know, being sort of uh, presumably one of very few African-Americans yes. school, probably elementary, middle school, you experienced the same th thing in business school. You did. And in fact, the business school and University of Michigan is, as a whole has trouble keeping African-American students. It's one of the top students in the schools in the country, but historically they've had issues. You know, mm. Some of it is because the schools in Detroit that they, they have a similar program that they have here at the undergraduate level where they let people in based on if you're the top 10% of your class. Well, in the city of Detroit, the schools are so bad that they're not teaching up to the standard that they should. And there's yeah. a little bit of that too. And what they ended up doing was changing their program so that they would bring people in like early that summer and you would go through like a training program, what yeah. it's like to do well in school. So in business school, I, uh, you got an MBA, I assume? Or? I got an MBA <laughs> and I had about six offers and selected to go to Hallmark cards, as I said, and then and and really, that was just a jumping off point. Michigan had the who's who companies coming right. in the country. It really opened up a lot of doors for me. Was your MBA um, with any specialization like in finance or marketing? Yeah, marketing and finance. Okay. Okay. So what, what after you lived in Michigan, what was the first job and how does your career go um, sort of from that point? Well, I, the first job was at Hallmark Cards. And I think I ask, I'll tell anybody, when you take a job, you have to know also where you're going. Um, because sometimes these cities, like I just wouldn't have lived in Kansas City long term. It's just too different. Um, and I, I needed to take that into consideration more. But I like the people that were nice. It's just I didn't feel like I wanted to spend the rest of my life in Kansas City. So I worked there for several years, and I was in a rotational assignment where I was in a, a marketing role a operation role and then an advertising role and then a sales role so i learned all aspects of the business very good very good training yeah yeah and then what um after hallmark how long were you there what lessons did you learn in that first position how did you make a decision to transition and where did you choose to transition to yeah so i uh spent about three years there <clears throat> and i really the other thing is it was a company that wasn't overly aggressive. So it was a company that really, it was very paternalist. People, it was the best place to work in Kansas City and people would stay there for like 30 years. And yeah. It wasn't as progressive. And I, I learned a lot about politics. One thing in particular, um, a marketing director wanted to kill a project. And so he had me work on to do a very detailed analysis to kill it. What he didn't tell me was that, uh, the Hall family that owned the Hallmark cards is privately held. That was one of their ideas. And, you know, it's, that's not a good way to start your career. You know, it's yeah. like, they kind of used me to, to deliver a message he didn't want to deliver. So I, sometimes they want to kill the messenger. And I, I had a, I learned an important lesson. I should have figured that out. Yeah. Yeah. So you, 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 you had to learn early on, uh, and I assume you did a pretty good job of killing the founder's idea. And so yeah, I did, and it didn't get killed. And I, and I also realized that you have to go to the culture. And it wasn't an aggressive culture. They yeah. didn't really want to change that much. 
Um, and as an example, they fired their advertising agents, YNR, because they, they took on AT&T as business. You and I would say, there's not really much, there's a totally different between the telephone business and the card, yet they find it a social expression. They mm. felt like they were calling, they wouldn't be sending cards. And I'm like, huh, okay. But I wouldn't look at it. But that's, you know, and, and, and they also sold mostly Hallmark stores. And, mm-hmm. and that was just starting when women were starting to work again. And what's happened now is that people don't have time to spend an hour in a Hallmark store. That's how much time people used to spend. They used to go in a Hallmark store and buy all these different products. That's how come it became a multi-billion dollar company is these Hallmark stores around the world were selling multiple puzzles and you know all kinds of things. And um, that market shifted dramatically and they were kind of slow to move. So I learned a lot from that, but I realized I wanted to be in a more sophisticated, more dynamic environment. So I went to work for Gillette, which as you know, is a leader in, in personal care products, razors, and um, you know, really great company to learn. Yeah. Yeah, and so what was that experience like and how long were you there? Interestingly, this is something you can learn in life. I was only there eight months. Um, I was doing very well and the company had a big layoff. And they laid off all the new. Um, fortunately for me, I got a five, six month package and I was able to find a new job at Kraft Food, General Foods, Kraft Foods, in about uh, 10 days. Mm. So I quickly find another job and um, that worked out much better. Yeah. Yeah. And then and at this point, had you left Kansas City when you took the job with Gillette? Yeah, I, I moved from Kansas City to Boston, totally different environment. Um, college town, you know, um, baseball, we did all, you know, Joe had tickets to everything. So, yeah. And and the other thing is that culture, we ate lunch with the same bosses and stuff today. It's just a very different kind of environment. So from, from Gillette, tell us about what your next position was. And, and at this point, I assume you're moving up in your career. I'm moving up. So I was an assistant product manager there. Um, I go to associate and then product manager at Kraft Foods, and I'm running um, a business. So I'm running a lot of the bird's eye frozen vegetable businesses, um, you know, working with the sales force to sell it in, um, uh, looking at what the volumes of what we need to order, you know, promotional campaigns, all of the above. So I was doing that, leading people, um, projects. And so I was there about three years really enjoyed it and then i had the opportunity to take a promotion and go work for american express Mm. um which was a leader in the credit card business travel just an amazing experience i really american express was a group in new york city Uh, these are all new york city yeah okay was ken chanel i I presume ken chanel was at american express was and um i ironically a friend of mine invited me to his house it was just him and another couple and this is when my wife and I were recently married. And if, who was there was Ken Chenault. Mm. So I got to spend time with Ken. We had, he took me out to lunch, only he and I in the executive dining room. There was no one there but he and I that day. And he's, we, were, we were having such a good conversation in an hour. He goes, oh, what? I've got a meeting in an hour, but I mean, in a few minutes, but let me cancel that because I want to continue our discussion. So he spent two hours with me. And it really was a transformative event for me. Yeah, he would take that time to do that, and that's the kind of person he was. And and really, that's what I've modeled myself. I meet and talk to people as well, 
to give them advice because it's so important. So tell me a bit more. I mean, like Ken is one of my, you know, one of the people I just admire from afar. I've never had a chance. And Ken Chenault, for our listeners uh, who ultimately became uh, CEO of American Express and served in that role for uh, the better part of a decade and recently retired, I think, within the last two years from that position. So what pos- what role was he in at this time and what... Yeah. You know, what really facilitated that connection and how did you make the most of that time you spent with him, especially given where you were at that point in your career? Yeah, I was only like a director or senior manager at that time. And he was president of our division and very, very powerful man. Um, and, he, you know, the, the, the person that was treasurer for AIG, I mean, for uh, American Express, um, was a friend of my wife's. And so she introduced me. She actually told Ken to have lunch with me. And sometimes you need somebody else to help do that because you can't necessarily just call these people up. Um, and so somebody that knew him. And, and then, you know, we've run, each, we run across each other every other year. And he remembers and we chat. He's just a wonderful human being. And what I realized about Ken that makes him special is he evaluates everyone based on the content of their character, not the level of the rank. And that is the neatest thing. He's, he's very genuine. He doesn't lose his temper. He's very thoughtful. He reminds me a lot of Barack Obama, you know, just very thoughtful about everything he says. He never belittles people. And I've been around a lot of executives that, you know, are not as polished around that, but very polished man, look perfect. Everything just, he, he was a full package. Yeah. Yet he also told me a story. Here he is when he was actually president. Of us. He had trouble getting a cab. As a black man. He had trouble getting a cab because sometimes you go and you're not necessarily going with the. So you know he had a chauffeur, but sometimes you weren't doing that. Let's say you're doing. Yeah. You know you want you're doing something on your own. You and he would try to get a cab. He told me he had a lot of trouble too. Interesting. Yeah. Really? But that really framed me because when you see people like that, you realize what makes them so successful. And, and they really, particularly for African-Americans, we have to be better than others at that level. And he really just was so polished, you know, and, and everything he said was positive. He's just a positive person. You know, a lot of these CEOs are negative, you know, telling you what you didn't do. And he was always somebody who really thought about the positive things. Real fascinating. Um, it was. So did that meeting have any material impact on your career? Or if not that, what what set of circumstances? Because I believe that for most people, we all have sort of those moments that are pivotal or those people that we encounter if not that interaction or, or subsequent relationship with Ken Chenault, what were some of those pivotal moments that really, you know, ushered your career and helped you thrive um, and continue to ascend up that ladder of leadership? Well, I would really say that it was, you were right. It wasn't with Ken Chenault. It was absolutely. And it wasn't that he could do anything to help my career. What you're going to learn in corporate America is I've been in situations where I was a a very senior person, and somebody wanted to fire someone that I didn't want them to do to do that. But you don't have as much power in those cases. 
because we mm. can't override them sometimes. And in this case, he couldn't necessarily, he was so high up, it would be hard for him politically to tell my boss's boss, you know, that, oh, Jeff needs to motion. So that's not, a lot of people think that happened, but it doesn't. But what he does tell you is what to do to be successful. He was in my position. He's been in my role. What did he do to distinguish himself? It was the time he spent where he showed me the roadmap of how to be successful. How to, you know, just a, a certain philosophy. Mm -hmm. Just like Oprah Winfrey's makes people always feel better about themselves. That's how Kenny. Yeah. And if mm. you do that with your employees, they will do anything for you. And Ken was somebody that people couldn't say a bad thing about. And I, and I worked with Jack Welsh, and I worked with uh, Hank Greenberg at AIG, and you mm -hmm. could they they you know a lot of these people because they reach a certain level they say what they say. At Ken, it's always very thoughtful. It's like Barack Obama. Can you ever remember we really lost his temper and went crazy? No. Yeah. It was mm. always it was always measured, always tempered. And I learned a lot from that. Yes. And they always say what they say in life is the speed this is what Mary Kay said at Mary Kay Cosmetics. The speed of the leader is the speed of the game. So that if you show people how to treat people, how to run a business, you don't have to yell and scream. You know, but but showing real leadership, then other people do the same thing. They they emulate that, and that's what makes it possible. It was very big about diversity, and he had me go to some historically black colleges. You know, and I, and he did have me do that. There's some things yeah. that he did were very positive, and these people, these kids, at American Express, they're recruiting at like Harvard and Michigan and Stanford, like the Wharton. Here you have these kids, Florida, you know, and. And, and yet these guys were working much harder and all the people from Harvard, it was interns in Stanford and such were saying, well, we're considering American Express, but we have 20 other companies we're considering. All of our guys, we're just happy to have a job. And they killed it. And I was so proud of those guys. Yeah, that's incredible. You know, the you talked about Ken sort of giving you the roadmap uh, and I know that, that that was a different era of yeah. business. What were some tidbits that you garnered from that conversation that you think might be helpful to share? And how might you apply it in today's present corporate environment? Well, I think there's a lot of, I think some of the stuff from us today, I think one of the things that, that, that you realize is so many people are so worried about failing that they forget about succeeding because you're in these jobs and you get competitive and sometimes you get, let's go back to the guys from Florida A&M. They're around all these people at Harvard and Stanford and they're outwardly really aggressive, talk a lot and you know, name drop and all of this. That isn't how you necessarily get ahead. Um, and sometimes that can be, when you're around people like that, that can make you feel less than. And you have to have your own and, and really go out and attack it. Art. You don't have to impress people by telling them who you know. You impress people by your knowledge. And so I think that's something that's so important. Is no matter where you went to school or what you did, you have to believe in yourself. So don't think about failing. Think about what do I need to be better than? And that's one of the things that I, that I learned. And the other thing is, 
you know, you, you have to be like a duck, corporate America, particularly as an African-American, where nobody sees you sweat. You might be paddling back under, underwater, but nobody yeah. sees you know, and I think that's very important as well. You know, yeah. you want to be like kid, cool and collected, thoughtful about it. let let people speak and, and, and listen well and learning how to listen. Really critical. And observing. You don't always need to talk. Sometimes it's observing. I love the analogy of, of a duck on water that, you know, people forget that they're paddling like heck because they're just gliding across that water and seemingly nothing is going on. They just uh, flowing with motion uh, in that moment. So take me now. Let me answer one other thing that I learned. I can't tell you how much pressure is put on in corporate America for not getting a promotion. You see other people get promoted. I remember my boss, a woman, crying at her desk because she did not get that promotion. You know what? When I get upset about not getting a promotion, I realize, like, thinking back now, I got promoted three months later. Who cares? These were minor things, but sometimes you you put too much emphasis on titles versus like knowledge and information. And if, the, if you don't leverage it here, they don't appreciate it, you can use it somewhere else. Just like you're doing with your real estate. If you're working at Chase Bank doing real estate ventures and they didn't appreciate you, you could just take the knowledge and go somewhere else and do it or do it yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, very important point to make mention of, uh, definitely the, the pressures. And, and I think it's not just a function of putting pressure on ourselves, but our tendency to want to compare ourselves with others, you know, without really understanding all the dynamics, but we try to, you know, measure ourselves against others when, you know, I'm one of those who I, I firmly believe in the principle that I'm my own biggest competitor. And so no one can set a higher bar for me than I set for myself. So that's an important note to make. Uh, uh, so thank you for sharing that. You're at American Express. You've had the, these incredible opportunities at your prior positions. Uh, what happens next and, and what ultimately leads you to transition in um, out of corporate America? Yeah, well, what ended up happening next was I, uh, I got a job to be a VP and officer one of the largest insurance companies in the country, it was Connecticut Mutual, Mass Mutual. Um, and so I, all of a sudden, you know, I'm like 36 years old and now I'm VP and officer of a you know, Fortune 500 company. Um, and that was a big, a big move. Um, and I learned a tremendous amount there. Um, so I did, and then that company ends up merging and I had an opportunity to then go to GE Capital. And Jack Well Jeff, could I just inter- can you share with me how did that position come about? Uh, executive recruiters. Yes. What they liked was my experience at American Express on customer service and marketing, and American Express was a leader in services and what Ken had done. And all of that I was able to leverage and jump several levels than I would have been at American Express. I doubled my salary. You know, it was very good from a compensation standpoint and became an officer of a Fortune 500 company. Wow. So it was, a, it was a great situation and did that, leveraged that to go to GE Capital and get to work with people like Jack Welch, who was running our GE, and then the people below that were running GE Capital. Mm-hmm. Became a black belt, Sigma, all of those things. Great experience. And I was able to leverage that into going to AIG 
and running a business in 30 countries. So I got to literally see the world as running things in Asia, or China, uh, Hong Kong, uh, Central Europe, Europe, went to London, Paris. I had offices all, all those places. Wow. India. Wow. So I got to see an amazing part of the world that gets to see. It's fascinating. So within what time frame was this jump from American Express to uh, to 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 Mass to G Capital? Well, about six years I was at AIG running those businesses. Okay. Wow. So you, you I think yeah, you faded out for a second. Would you repeat? Yeah, about now that I think about it, it's probably about eight years, something like that. Um okay. that I was running those businesses, which was amazing. And then my wife's career took off and she was president of Citibank's retail bank and then ran Snapple, was the chief marketing officer for Snapple Beverage Company. And then she, her job, then she became president of ProLine International, which is the second largest haircut, black haircut company. Mm. And we ended up moving down to Dallas. So I ended up starting my own businesses. And I, and I told you about the technology company that we started and right. it's been all that because of the work I learned in corporate America, that was able to do all that. So you went from AIG to starting the technology company. What led to that decision? Well, I went to AIG and I went to Citigroup and then I started the company. After okay. My- so what was the pivotal decision? When did you arrive at the conclusion that, hey, I've done corporate enough or was it just fortuitous? And- it was fortuitous and it was also my wife's career was taking off and I realized that I could have gone overseas to work for AIG. I could have done a lot of different things. I had to move from the, um, so it was my wife's career that let me leave AIG. And then I realized that if I moving around, you know, I, maybe I should do something else. You know, independent that not in a big company. Um, so that's what made, led me to, to do the small business thing. And I decided that I did it because it creates so much opportunity. You really want to build wealth. As you said, that is where you do it. You actually, people don't realize that. And it's funny because people used to laugh. I would tell people my business was like $10 million, $10 million in sales because people were working on, billion dollars, working on billions of dollars of sales. But if you don't actually work for a big company, it's really your sales. It's the company's sales. And most of these companies like American Express, such momentum in their business that it's not hard to grow at $100. It's actually, right. um, but it's very hard to build a from scratch to $10 million. I'm just I telling agree. you, extremely hard, but you don't really know that because you're you're, 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 you're dealing with billions of dollars. I'll give you an example. There was a guy, a black guy, actually running all the um, gas business that's at Walmart and Sam's Club. Billions of dollars. All he was doing was pumping the gas into a big distribution network. And so how much work is that versus building something from scratch? Mm-hmm. But he mm-hmm. was like, well, I run a $3 billion business. He does, but how much they make a penny a gallon. Right. They're not trying to make, it. you know, it's a very, you have to, yeah, you are right, Jeff. I think a lot, a lot of times, you know, people have this disconnect where they think, you know, having worked in corporate and, being involved in these larger deals and touching so many different aspects of business, they think that 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 somehow can readily translate to running a business where you have to start from scratch, 
where there's no legacy, where there's no, you know, no legacy clientele or suppliers, where you don't have, um, you know, a brand name that's already sort of established. You know, and these are businesses that can raise, you know, capital through the public markets, through the private markets and so many other ways uh, that they can keep their businesses going. I mean, for example, we're doing this via live stream because we're still in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, but it was kind of like with the, the PPP loans that were supposed to help, you know, protect payrolls, uh, you know, small businesses. That was the only lifeline they had access to for some of these larger companies like Bruce Chris that ended up returning the money because they could just raise money on the stock market or they could, you know, you know get other investors together or, or issue bonds and things of that sort. So it's a big uh, it's a big shift. And so when you have to actually go. Uh, and create something from scratch and grow that to a $10 million uh, enterprise, it is quite a feat because there are people who are in business for 30 years and never get to that size. Right. So you, you did make a uh, an important note that, you know, I think it's one of those, you know, things that we seldom talk about when you have sort of this high flyer couple and you've got, you know, man and woman, wife is building her career, man is building his career as well. Uh, I often find, particularly in our community, that brothers can have a difficulty reconciling, sort of taking a step back and letting the woman lead. How, you know, obviously you didn't have an issue with that. You, You know, that was something that you embraced. What was that process like and how important was the family structure and spousal support and the su- success you achieved in your career? Now, spousal support was everything. And um, how I made the decision was, I also got kind of tired of corporate America because you reach a certain level and there's a lot of politics and, and all of those things. And I realized that, you know what? I really did, particularly after working at Citibank, it was so big too, and AIG, these giant companies. And so I realized that, um, I could still do well and I didn't have to work at a big company and it provided flexibility. And it was great for my kids and everything else. So it was like a win-win. I was happy. Excellent, excellent. So you go into starting a business, what adjustments did you have to make? I mean, coming from corporate, uh, what were some of those early lessons that you had uh, now when you're in private enterprise running your own shop? Well, you know what's interesting, I think all people go through this, is that when you're at a big company, idle. And so people will meet with you and everywhere you go, you get you know what questions are asked and they ask the similar questions. But I was with high profile would ask lots of things and you would be invited to things because you work at this big company or because you actually be a big client for that. You get all that. Well, as soon as you start your own business, you're really a nobody. Even though you were somebody at another company, people don't know that. So you really start from scratch and you have to build different kinds of relationships. So that's one thing that's very, very different versus at AIG, everybody knew we had the money. Mm-hmm. So never an issue like, oh, can they afford this? You know, <laughs> but you're a small business, you're people, they always wonder, you know, how real is it? Um, so there's a lot of differences um, you know, around that. You don't have staffs to help you do a lot of these things. So you have to do it yourself. It's your own money. Think about things a little bit differently around that. Another mm-hmm. big thing is 
you end up running into a lot of charlatans, a lot of people that aren't what they say. And you can very easily get taken in by people that don't have the same values that you do. And, and what happens is big companies, they have a way to screen those people out. But as you know, as a real estate developer, you meet some of these people too, you think can do what they say, and they can't do it. But they mm -hmm. tell you they've done it a million times, and they haven't. And so you, I think that's a big you have to face too. It's like, who, who are the right people to work with? At the big companies, you already knew. I couldn't call a McKinsey. I couldn't call the YNR. Or I couldn't, you have to build your own relationships. Yeah. All new and different. Yeah. And I've heard several of those stories where people talk about, you know, people who used to plead to, to get their attention or to, you know, have them come sit in a suite for a football game. All of a sudden they left that corporate position and title and couldn't get a phone call returned. Uh, so it's definitely uh, one of those harsh realities. The flip side of that, uh, Jim Crane, who is the owner of the Astros, who, who I've actually had an opportunity to to meet here in Houston, he talks about the the flip side of that. He went from running a successful billion dollar enterprise, and he'd be picking up the phone and calling folks who would never return his call, or he, he just had a hard time uh, getting their attention on things. The minute he became owner of the Astros, those people were calling on him. So. So there's a flip side to 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 how that can work, and so uh, the key is understanding that and figuring out again how do you leverage knowledge of how different things, or positions, or affiliations with organizations uh, can make a difference. And, and the other thing, and I would tell people this: most people, particularly if you work at a big, well-known company, they don't think they need to network to that much because they're already at, they're already at the no, they don't need that. Networking is so important. It's it's that's when you realize it's small business owner. You don't have these big infrastructures behind you, but you have your network. Like when I asked you some questions, you actually dramatically helped me shape my decision because you I, I could go to you and and resources and relationships are everything. And that's what successful as a business person is. I have relationships with people like you that I can, and that makes it and trust. And that's yeah. That, Truly important, truly important. And you know what I find is that people that are small business owners are oftentimes much better networkers because you have to. Yeah, you can't just sit in your you can't just sit in your office. People that are big companies, if they did nothing, the business is still going to grow. <laughs> like if right now with Zoom, and I'm the marketing person at Zoom. That business is going to no matter what you do. Precisely. Precisely. And, and, you know, I know it all too well. I started my career uh, in real estate as an you know, entrepreneur. I was hanging my shingle a month after graduating from college. So uh, it was a necessary tool because there was no business to be had. Your phone didn't ring until you compelled some activity to cause it to ring. So yeah. uh, I know it all too well and, and can tell that story again. And thanks for the kind words that you offer, you know. Uh, you know, how we met was through networking. I mean, obviously through a mutual friend uh, with political implications, uh, but we built a relationship, we got introduced and we got to know each other. And now here we are uh, uh, a couple of years later and we've built a friendship um, over the over that time period. Absolutely. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So going back to your business, did you have to raise capital um, when you started this business or along the way? Yeah, well, I had the capital, which was fortunate. I'd, I'd saved it. So I had the capital to do it. And then, you know, we picked up Plano ISD, which is almost $5 million in and of itself. And just one thing led, led after the other. Mm-hmm. It was very, I was very fortunate in how it worked out. Yeah, so you had the capital, but for a lot of folks, the 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 divide uh, or the limiting factor oftentimes is capital. What are some thoughts that you have on raising capital? Yeah, that's incredibly hard, and I think most people misinterpret the interest that banks have in startup companies. Most people think of it like they would a venture capital firm, which invests money. Banks don't do that. You know, it's all about balance sheets and everything else. So it is very difficult to raise money. And that's why you need to either get a partner or get someone that can provide some capital. You know, it's 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 a very difficult. You're, you're, maybe it can be family, friends, other people, but it's very difficult to, to get capital. And I understand, even if you have capital, it's hard. Yeah, so let, if, if you'll indulge me, I kind of want us to sort of have an exchange about this. Capital is such um, an essential you know, aspect of business. Uh, a lot of businesses that go out of business, particularly minority-owned businesses, it's because of capital. You know, people step out. You've just kind of you know, talked about, hey, you had the money. You saved it. Obviously, you had a spouse that was still working. Right. Uh, I find it oftentimes that, you know, people will approach me and say, hey, you know, you've been an entrepreneur and I want to, you know, do what you do. And, and, and I often will, you know, engage them, and ask them a bit about their job and explain to them that, listen, you might be tired of the man, but here's the difference. The man makes sure that direct deposit hits every two weeks and you're so sure of it hitting that you incur liabilities. You auto pay your bills without checking. Because the man makes sure that money is there. Yeah. Flip side, when you're in business, uh, you could start out and you have people who have good intentions. They think, hey, I've got, you know, a year of living expenses set aside and I've got my base working capital. And then they get into the business and they realize it takes a lot longer or all the things that they estimated in their business plan didn't quite work out the way they anticipated they didn't get that bank financing. So how do we better help people think through that process? What should you do up front in preparing yourself if you're in a corporate position today and you decide, hey, in, I don't know, 12 to 36 months, I want to exit. What steps would you advise people take? Yeah, and I have a lot of thoughts on this because first of all, I wouldn't do it the way I did it. I think it's too risky. I got lucky. Um, but I think there's a better way to do it. I, I think what I would do, there are millions of successful small businesses. What you should do is you should find someone hiring and wanting to sell their business. Many times these people will help finance it because they can't find other people to buy it. It might be a couple million dollar business, but it's got existing cash flow, which is something of a bit of security. And if you tie that owner who sells compensation to how well the business does for about a year or so to make sure that you can transition it, you can actually do very well. You need less capital that way. So I would actually buy an existing business 
that's relatively small, so that equity firms aren't looking at it either, um, and that might like you, you know, and say, hey, here's a young kid, young guy willing to go do this, and, you know, is willing to, um, in, in other words, help finance part of it, and you could do a cash out. So I yeah. think that's a wonderful way to do it, the win-win, because the other person has trouble, the owner has trouble selling the business, and the other, the kid has trouble buying a business, and you merge the two, and, and you get a mentor to help you make sure that you do it right at the beginning and are trained, but you as a young person will think of maybe new technology, new creative ideas to maybe do it differently. So I think there's lots of opportunities. Yeah, so Jeff, how do you um, select an industry? And then two, how do you find those businesses that might be up for sale? Because I don't assume you just Google business for sale and it pulls up. Well, part of it is you have to say, you know, what's what are, what are some, what's the trends going on in society? Is um, it, what's 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 an area that's that's doing well and growing? Um, and what do you like to do? I mean, if you're you don't want to start a technology if you don't like technology. Um, but 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 you should think about that. And then it's a then it's a matter of there's brokers out there that are listing businesses, and you can start talking to them. Um, you'll see. Some Businesses will say when you do that, look, talk to brokers, owner financing available. So I think you can do some research. It's like researching a project or researching a, a, something for a bus, business uh, business plan or a project at work. You know, very similar to that. You know, just doing some research and then going to finding the brokers and trying to line that. Because that's how most of these really small businesses are sold are through brokers. You know, just yeah. like they're sold to real estate agent. Yeah, yeah. In addition to luck, what else do you think are some keys to success for businesses? Let's say you you know you do follow the, the advice that you uh, pre, you know that you've just offered. You go find a business. You're able to figure out a way to to finance it. Uh, you know through some combination of leverage and equity. Mm -hmm. uh, then what would you say in addition to luck are some of the keys to success in business? Well, you, you really need to solve a problem. You know, because if you're solving a problem, you know you're going to be successful, and a problem that's that's meaningful and has some financial implications. But if you can do that, I think that is that is fantastic. I think the other thing is focus on customer service. You know, people, people sometimes they're commodity, like hotels, but they're not. The Four Seasons and the Ritz are very different than Choice Hotel or Motel Six, and there's ways to differentiate yourself through your service, you know, as well, or making it easier to access as well. So those are, are critically important. Mm -hmm. and, you, and you also want to pick a business that, you know, has, the, has good returns. Because sometimes you can be in these businesses that are pennies businesses, and it can be very difficult to make a living, even though some of these things are glamorous businesses. People say, oh, that would be a fun to be in. But it, it, it'd be very difficult to make. Yeah. Yeah. So um, very worthy advice about, you know, really solving a problem, customer service, uh, and really making sure that, you know, the, the financial uh, case uh, or, or the financial prospects make the risk worthwhile. Uh, I couldn't agree more on, on those three points that you made. If we could uh, pivot for a second, um, I, I wanted to ask you this earlier. You talked about that chance meeting with Ken Chenault. 
What are your thoughts overall about mentors uh, and sponsors? And what advice do you have uh, for folks who are looking for either a mentor or sponsor and how to cultivate and foster those relationships? No, I, I think mentors and sponsors are exceedingly important. Um, sometimes in corporate America, you can get somebody that works at the company you know, to do it. And I think that can be great. But sometimes you don't have that opportunity, or maybe a smaller company. But you might find other people that are doing similar kinds of things that um, you can network with, get them to provide you with advice and counsel. And, and I've used both. And, and, it's, and really by going out and meeting people, you know, and going to networking events and doing those sorts of things, you will meet people and you'll naturally see people that you know are successful. And, and most people like to talk about themselves. Most people actually like to give back. It makes them feel good. So if you can match those, those that up, very well get a very good mentor to help you understand like how to be successful. Because sometimes being successful, these successful people that I've met, like Ken, he would have been successful at an investment bank. He would have been successful at a retail at, at Nordstrom's. He'd have been successful anywhere he worked. And so it doesn't matter. You don't necessarily even have to be in the same industry. Because there's a lot of commonality in leadership. Yeah. Yeah. What advice would you offer to a 20 or 30 year old version of yourself? Boy, I'll tell you, you know what I would have done differently? I think I would have gone into private equity or investment banking instead of what I went before. Because that those are the people really making the money. And they're the ones that are really building. Or like what you're doing, being a developer. I mean, those are the people that really make money when you do it right. Um, and so I would have just fast forwarded and gone straight into it. Because those, <laughs> those that are really making change. Because when you're working at a company, unless you're the CEO or call the operating committee, the, the executive team, you're not probably get rich working for you know, you would you may you can make a good living, but the people that are really successful are oftentimes people who run a $30 million company. I met a guy and he has 40% margins. And yes, it's only 30 million, and it's another guy that's president of a billion dollar division, but guess who's more successful financially and having more fun and has his own job and write it off. You know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm not I'm not a big I'm not big about money so much as the opportunity to really build something. And I think that's what it allows you to do. And as a byproduct, you make pretty good money too. But it's really building something. Otherwise, you're going to corporate America and it's like a, it's kind of a crapshoot. There's, there's a lot of luck. To it. Yeah. 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 And, 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 and it is true that there are people, I had a friend of mine learned the hard way. He actually got a one rating at GE, which is the highest you can get, built this business up tremendously. And his boss said, he did a great job, but I want to bring my own person. He had a new president. He always worked with his as a CFO. They just wow. And so this guy didn't have a job. You know, wow. he had to find a new one. And that's something that's not, you, he, you don't have control. And I've, I've talked to a lot of business people, too, who own their own business, who say, hey, I always know how to be successful in running a business. So if this business, if someone took it from me, I could start over and, and and make money quickly if I needed to. Yeah, yeah. And that's it. And that's about that's a control thing. Yeah, you can actually just like what you're doing in your business. You actually get to. And there's something to be said for that. Yeah. Once you, 
Yeah, yeah. So one or two decisions that you made in the past or wish you made? Well, I mean, I had opportunities to work at Google when it was just starting. I mean, I've had a lot of different... Google, there's, there's, a, there's a few. <laughs> Netflix, uh, there's been a few, but uh, Amazon. Um, but you know what? You don't know. No. And I don't know if I would have been happy doing that. So it's one of those things I'd think back, could I have made a lot more money? Sure. But it would have been a different different road. You know, and you just don't know. Um, and, and you can't know. And so I'm not the kind of guy that looks back at that. I just said it's meant for a reason. You know, it's meant for a yeah. reason. You know, and I'll yeah. tell you, I, I have done well as better than I ever expected. You know, am I, you know, like... Am I, am I like the CEO of, the, of these companies I mentioned? No, but I don't have to be. You know, so everybody has their own path and you can't really look in the rearview mirror. I like that. So looking forward, uh, what's on the horizon for you? What's your big picture long term? And then whatever closing remarks you want to add. Yeah, I'd say for me um, right now, I've already achieved kind of what I've wanted to, a lot of what I've wanted to achieve. I want to build this a large fund, which I've talked to you about, which I think we will be able to do. And it's done through contact, all the people, all the right people. Um, so that's great. But it's really, for me, it's more about me giving back, um, trying to get, do more in the community. You know, um, as you, you know, as, as much as given, much as expected. And I really do want to um, give back and support. Fantastic. Uh, you've talked about the importance of networking, knowledge acquisition, mm -hmm. and making sure that it makes dollars and cents. Like yes. Jeff has been Jeff Green, Managing Director of GWG Capital. My name is Lala Davis Yemington, and this is my brother podcast. Oh.